0: Gina Della from Pella. Get up to five years no interest, five months no first payment, and 5% same-day order savings at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 555's been extended, but only through October 31st. See PaulaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good
1: afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. I admit, it's stuff like this that just me off. It's the senseless type of crime, which apparently it just is just so pervasive around here that I, I think is partly caused by the fact that we've grown so permissive. We don't have we people accountable. The, the, the idea of the broken windows concept of policing, which is like the little stuff matters and you need to punish the little stuff because if you don't, it, it soon becomes big stuff. This is just one of those classic examples of this. Here's the story from the local newspaper. More than 50 vehicles broken into in Brown Deer Police say suspects aim to cause damage to as many vehicles as possible. Brown Deer police are searching for multiple suspects after more than 50 vehicles were broken into overnight along North Green Bay Road and West Brown Deer Roads. Suspects targeted vehicles that were parked at businesses and residences during the overnight hours from October 24th to the 25th. So that is Sunday night into Monday morning. Uh, the Brown Deer police say it appeared the main purpose was to cause damage to as many vehicles as possible while ignoring most of the property contained within the vehicles. The community outreach officer says most of the cars had broken passenger side windows and glove compartments and center consoles had been rummaged through. Most cars, though, had plenty of stuff left behind. Most cars had plenty of stuff left behind. Police watched one surveillance video that showed suspects traveling in two vehicles. It's dark. It's not high quality, so you can't tell. The people are wearing masks and hoodies, and it's kind of far away. Uh, they said that there could be about seven suspects based on the number of cars and how quickly they were searched. So let, let's break this down. All right. So you have, my guess is, it's just a guess, but my guess is these are juveniles could be wrong, but my guess is they are. You, they are wearing masks. They are wearing hoodies. They are in two cars. And this this isn't stealing cars. This isn't stealing cars to take them on joy rides or to chop them up or to use them in other crimes. This is pure vandalism. They're going car by car, breaking out the passenger side window and rummaging through the car. But it's not even a theft sort of thing, because, as the cops are saying, they leave valuables in there. It's just this is two car folds of people. Again, my guess is it's going to be kids could be wrong, but uh, who are just out there to destroy as much crap as they possibly can. There's nothing that comes of this other than, here, let's smash somebody's car window. Let's, like, root through the glove compartment. Let's root through the, um, you know, the center console. I mean, I guess if, if, if there was cash or something in there, they might take it. But, but this is not a crime for the sake of trying to, gee, let's make ourselves rich. Let's get a little bit of extra money. This is a couple groups of cars. People who went out to simply cause as much destruction as they possibly could by breaking out windows and rifling through cars over a period of time. Completely and totally senseless violence. Now, some people might say, oh, what's the really big deal here? Maybe there's insurance or whatever. But if your car was one of those 50, 50, 5 zero vehicles that were vandalized during this spree, Sunday night into Monday morning, my guess is you, you do treat this seriously, and this is literally the broken windows idea towards law enforcement. Now, I hope when they catch the people that are involved, again, my guess is it's going to be kids, because if this was an organized ring, you you would think that they'd be trying to steal the cars or that there'd be an attempt to steal stuff out of it. This strikes me as being vandalism purely for the sake of vandalism. It has caused a huge inconvenience and an enormous expense to at least 50 car owners in the Brown Deer area on Green Bay Road and the Brown Deer area for no no apparent purpose other than you've got a bunch of people who think it's fun to take crowbars or whatever or baseball bats and break in the windows of other people's cars and just kind of rifle through them for for the sport of it. Now, when they catch them, my guess is assuming they are able to catch them, my guess is, once again, it's going to turn out to be juveniles. Secondly, it's going to be juveniles who have been through the juvenile court system um, before because again, Maybe maybe this is just the day that Sunday night you you say, you know, the Packers won today. What are we going to do Sunday night? I know. Let's put on masks and hoodies and go out and create as much destruction as we possibly can. Maybe maybe that's you'd say that's the first time you've done something like that, but like I say, my guess is That, you know, the the people who are responsible for this have been through the system on multiple occasions and have just been slapped on the wrist and, and told, you know, don't do it again. And now they're escalating into progressively more serious things. But it's this senseless nature of crime that's out there. And the fact that we don't appear yet to be willing to take this kind of stuff Seriously. And I will tell you, if you don't catch the people that are caving in people's um, car windows like this, I guarantee you that pretty soon they're going to be caving in people's heads when they move up to carjacking or something like that. That's why it's so important to stop stuff like this before it escalates. 50 cars, two carloads of people wearing masks and hoodies to disguise their identity out solely for the purpose of seeing how much damage, how much destruction they can cause in this case in Brown Deer. And they were obviously relatively successful with this. We'll continue to monitor this case because hopefully, ho- hopefully they'll catch them. Hopefully there will be some action taken, but of course this is Milwaukee County, so you know who knows how much stuff will really be done. All right, let us switch gears. I put this into the category of why people hate lawyers, but, but maybe you see another side for it. Now let me back into this. When I, I'm not a big fan of strawberry. Okay. It's just, it's not one of my favorites, but if I, if I go to a bakery and there's a, um, there's a, I decide I I want a strawberry filled donut Okay. So I, so I order that. I'm not necessarily thinking that I'm going to get, be getting a, a health food sort of thing. I'm going to be thinking, oh, there's going to be strawberry flavoring. I mean, I'm not thinking this is like going to the fruit market and, and buying a bunch of strawberries. It, it's, it's a donut that's got like some sort of strawberry filling in it. And it's to give me the taste of strawberry, right? That, that's how I, I think about that. Well, I am a big fan of Pop-Tarts. I, I admit, i I've over the years, I don't eat them very much anymore. If my wife is listening, I, I don't remember the last time I had a Pop-Tart. I was always partial to the brown sugar cinnamon frosted Pop-Tarts. But, oh, okay. All right. They One of the more popular brands of frost tarts, uh, Pop-Tarts is what they call the whole grain frosted strawberry toaster pastries. That's the way they're built. But they're, they're strawberry Pop-Tarts. Okay. Now, I don't think I've ever purchased strawberry pop tarts in my life because again, I'm not a big strawberry guy, but when I buy, if I were to buy a strawberry pop tart, I wouldn't be thinking that I'm necessarily getting a whole bunch of strawberries that are in that pop tart. Instead, I'm going to be thinking, huh, I'm going to be getting something that's flavored like strawberry in there it's not if, if you're thinking you're going to get a health food sort of thing when you're buying the pop-tarts you're, you're in the wrong aisle so here's the deal a woman is seeking five million dollars from Kellogg's accusing the popular cereal company of misleading customers into thinking its strawberry Pop-Tarts contain more strawberries than they actually do. Now, this is a lawsuit which is filed by this law firm out of New York, which files two or three fraud suits per week uh, against places like Kellogg's and stuff, uh, alleging that consumers are being ripped off. The argument here is that by calling them Strawberry Pop-Tarts, whole grain frosted strawberry toaster pastries, they mislead people into thinking that these are essentially all strawberries that are in the filling. Actually, there's a little bit of strawberry that's in there. There's apparently also like peach and apple that are in there. They use a coloring agent to um, create the the red look to this. Strawberries are more expensive than pears, so that's one of the reasons why they use pears in this as well. But the argument is, hey, th- these, these aren't all strawberries there. There's some apple, there's some pear, there's a little bit of strawberry, there's coloring to make it look red, and then they use something else to give it the, kind of the strawberry taste. So the person is suing, saying five million bucks, I want five million dollars, because Kellogg's is misleading me there's not enough strawberry in the Pop-Tart. Our number, 855 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Maybe it's just me, but like I say, uh, it would not occur to me if I was buying the Pop-Tarts. I would be thinking, hey, I'm going to be getting something that tastes like strawberry. It will be strawberry flavored. I'm not necessarily thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be filled with actual strawberries. 855-616-1620. For all those of you who are Pop-Tart fans, for example, are you... Are you disillusioned? Do you feel ripped off if you find out that, well, hey, there might actually be more pears in the strawberry filling than there are strawberries? 855-616-1620. I don't think people care about that. I think people buy the Pop-Tarts because they like the strawberry taste, regardless of where it comes from. 855-616-1620.
0: We discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620,
1: 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. By the way, I, I was commenting on that story out of Brown Deer. A number of people are texting in saying what they think this is is a gang initiation. That's one of the things. As part of the gang initiation. You're supposed to go out and just see how much destruction you can possibly cause. And if if that's the case, it would support my notion that this is a juveniles just out to destroy stuff for the sake of destroying stuff. Other people positing that the people are going through the cars looking for guns. Um Again, either one is a good situation, but the bottom line is this stuff has to stop. Okay, 855 which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're just tuning in, a lawsuit was filed late last week against Kellogg, you know, the cereal company. They make Pop-Tarts. The lawsuit is going after strawberry Pop-Tarts, which if you look at the front of strawberry Pop-Tarts, it says whole grain frosted strawberry toaster pastries. The argument is that calling them strawberry Pop-Tarts is false, deceptive, and misleading because the Pop-Tarts contain mostly non-strawberry fruit ingredients. There's a little bit of strawberry in there, but there's also some apple. There's some pear. You put pear in there because pear is cheaper than strawberries. They put some strawberry flavoring in. They put some coloring in, and and boom, you, you have something that tastes like strawberries. So the argument is this is fraudulent. This is deceptive because when I buy Pop-Tarts at the store, I'm assuming if I'm buying strawberry Pop-Tarts that there's the majority of the contents are going to be like real strawberries. To which it's like, what? eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Here's a text, Jeff. First of all, I have never been under the impression that Pop-Tarts are necessarily healthy and full of real fruit. Secondly, this is what comes from a society that doesn't work um, and occupy the brain with anything other than trying to get something for nothing. You know, interestingly, in the story about this that I'm looking at in the Washington Post, they, they quote the, the lawyer. And this guy, th- this is his... This is his law firm's business. Um, they they file lawsuit after lawsuit in federal court, food related. And, I mean, the guy himself apparently says, well, I, I lose a lot more cases than most people do, which tells me that what's going on here is you find these clients, and what you do is you file these nuisance suits that you try to turn into class action suits, and then you hope that you can get some sort of settlement that pays some loy that you can make a quick buck um, out of this. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text line. All right, for those of you who are fans of Pop-Tarts, are you shocked? Are you disillusioned to find out that if you buy something like a strawberry Pop-Tart, well, it, it's it might be other fruit in there and flavoring and coloring. It's not like exclusively strawberries, to which my comment is, I, I think people most people recognize that it's not a health food sort of thing when you're buying a strawberry pop tart, you're buying something that's flavored strawberry. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Akinet Mortgage Um Talk and Text Line. And a number of people are pointing out, Jeff, this sounds a lot like that lawsuit that was filed a little while ago against Subway. Remember the one that they said they're footlong Subway subs and some people went out and they measured it and they determined that when the sandwich was ultimately served, it was only 11 and three quarters inches or something, which in general was explained by the fact that when you bake bread, you know, it, it tends to shrink a little bit. So, you know, Subway in that case would start off with foot long sandwiches. They put them in the oven and there's a little bit of what do they call um um shrinkage. There, Jeff. If somebody is so concerned about this, maybe they should read the ingredients before they purchase the pop tart. Well, yeah. The answer is nobody's concerned about this. You know, you 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 are you are buying something that you know is going to be flavored in some fashion. And by the way, you also know that it's probably not the best thing. Jeff, five dollars—the cost of a few boxes of Pop-Tarts—might be a more suitable award. How in the world do they come up with five million dollars? Well, yeah, that's some—you um, know—that's—that's that's it. That's the well. You want a nice round number if you're trying to again find out some amount of money. Um, Jeff, I, I guess she did not read the ingredients on in the box before buying the Pop-Tarts. Well, you've got that element that's there as well. Jeff, it's all processed fake food. Practically nothing in them is natural. Anyone who doesn't realize that, well, what is it that I can possibly say? Well, yeah, if, if it's, oh my gosh, you know, I, I've ordered this and it turns out it's just flavored stuff. I'm shocked about this. Let me find a lawyer and let me see if I can sue. That's the frustration. Jeff, i love Pop-Tarts. The woman is crazy. If she's disappointed, then she should not buy them again and maybe at the very most get a free box of Kellogg's and nothing more. That's from Marsha. Well, the problem is she doesn't want that. I mean, she, she wants $5 million. She feels that she has been deceived by that evil big cereal company because they've said that, you know, there's no strawberry flavoring. Next thing you know, she's going to sue because she's going to realize that there's not really a Captain Crunch. You know, it's a made-up character. Well, I thought it was Captain Crunch, and they really enjoy that cereal. Let's talk to um, Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ.
2: Hey, uh, I think the answer to this is uh, real simple. It's just that the lawyers are getting rich off of the lawsuits. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, not too many years ago, Jimmy John's had a lawsuit brought against them. There was a, an issue with them getting sprouts for their sandwiches, and they didn't have sprouts on a particular sandwich. The suit was brought up. The people involved in the suit all got a coupon for Jimmy John's that amounted to about 60 to 70 cents. But the lawyer who filed the suit made $890,000 yeah. on that suit alone.
1: Yeah. No, you're 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 exactly right now. Thanks. for And th- this is why I say people thanks to this is why I say people hate lawyers, because there see there is a role for what we call these class action lawsuits, you know, because a lot of times what happens is, let's say you have a, a manufacturer who comes out with a, a product that is defective, but the damages, the damages are aren't really that great. You know, may, maybe any individual person, that the damages for the, this product, it's 50 bucks, let's say in my example, okay? So you, you can't sue, it's just not practical to sue the manufacturer to say, hey, you put out this defective product and I've lost 50 bucks. But by the time you hire the lawyer and you file the lawsuit, the, the case, you, 50 bucks isn't worth it. So that's why you have these class action lawsuits where you can say, okay, 50, if if you have you know, 100,000 people who've all been injured, they've got this defective product, and each of their damages is $50, it makes sense to combine them into one big lawsuit because then what happens is you can go out and you can hire a lawyer and you can get some sort of recovery. Now, to your point, Mike, you're right. A lot of times the, the real person that benefits is the lawyer that files the suit, but there can be a benefit to these class action lawsuits. The downside, though, is stuff like this, where you take a cause of action that, in my opinion, is frivolous, and what you do is you try to then bully the, the firm in the the company in this case. Well, you know we're going to sue you. We're going to seek this class action sort of stuff. So, all right, we're asking for five million bucks, but I tell you what, give us give us a hundred thousand dollars, and the lawyer will take you know forty thousand dollars of that, and it and it's a quick hit. Plus, you get a little bit of publicity. So then maybe the next person that comes in and wants to complain about, hey, I I bought the grape juice, and you know what? It's not all grape juice. I'm ripped off in that regard. So there's a role for class action suits, but unfortunately, it it, it gets turned on its head by stuff like this. These are the sort of things that give lawyers a bad name. I hope Kellogg's refuses to pay this, and let's, let's just kind of play this out. Back with more in just a minute.
2: This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Here's a text. Jeff, my daughter had a strawberry pop tart this morning. She loves them. Well, now you're going to have to have the talk with your daughter. Did, did you know, hon, that these strawberry pop tarts that you love, do you know that they're it, it's really that, that you might be eating pear. You know, you might be eating pear flavored to taste like strawberry. And you know what? My guess is the daughter's going to say, I love them. <laughs> Give me two more. You a fan of strawberry Pop-Tarts there, Mike Spaulding? I'm not, but I'm a fan of Pop-Tarts overall. What's your favorite? I like the cherry and the brown sugar cinnamon ones. The frosted brown sugar cinnamon are mine, but I'm I'm sure the same beef with the strawberry Pop-Tarts, I'm sure it applies to the cherry Pop-Tarts as well. If you were to look at the ingredients, those cherry Pop-Tarts are probably, there's a little bit of cherry in there, probably some coloring, probably some flavoring, and maybe some like apple or pear or something like that. Are you going to stop eating them? No course not no i never once thought man i'm getting my daily dose of fruit with this well exactly but okay even <laughs> if you're going to continue eating them though i've got a name of a law firm in new york maybe just maybe you want to jump on that bandwagon and say hey the, the cherry pop tarts they're they're not all cherry either I, the problem is i enjoy them so they would offer me like free pop tarts for a year and i would just immediately jump <laughs> on it and right. ruin the class action right. for I, everyone. I don't want five million dollars <laughs> just give me some more of these cherry pop tarts that i can all right
2: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Next Tuesday is Election Day, and we'll be talking, I think, a lot over the course of the next few days about this big recall race that's going on in Ozaukee County and the mequon thiensville School District, in part because it's being watched nationwide. This is on the front page of the New York Times on Saturday, as you, you have conservative groups who believe school boards going in completely the wrong direction and they've got this recall that's on the ballot and you have a, a lot of the the institutional people behind again what I think has been the growing trend of more liberal school boards and things like that that they're, they're really they've got their back up and so lots of money is starting to get put into these races and we'll see that but there's another real interesting national race that's up next Tuesday and that is Virginia Virginia has off-off-year elections, and there's the race in Virginia for governor. Now, putting this in perspective, Virginia has moved from being kind of a swing state to over the last decade or so, Virginia has been a reliable Democrat state. That's just the way it's it's broken down I, I think as you you know it, it but there's a split again there's there's a rural and urban divide and you've got the parts of Virginia that are extremely liberal like in the northern part where you've got the suburbs of DC and things like that and then you've got the more rural areas that tend to be more conservative but in general Virginia has been a a reliable democrat state over the last decade or so and and that was expected to continue in the governor's race next tuesday there's a former governor's name is terry mcauliffe Big, uh, big time Democrat associated with the Democratic Party for decades. He was the, the governor for one term and he was expected to cruise. I mean, cruise to reelection. People were thinking, OK, this is going to be a traditional sort of election and he's going to win with 55 to 60 percent of, of the vote. He's being challenged by a guy named Glenn Youngkin, who is really a first time politician, but but a conservative the the thing that is the reason this race is getting as much attention now is all the polls and i understand people have their different feelings about polls but all the polls show this race deadlocked as of a, a week before the election the most recent poll i saw had it like 45 45 with about 10% undecided and it, it, this is being watched as a potential bellwether for the the midterm elections the regular midterms next year why is the Democrat, if the Democrat is, why is McAuliffe in trouble in Virginia if, if he is in fact in trouble? Well, it, it's because of, of Biden. Uh, Joe Biden's poll numbers underwater. Um, so the Republicans have been linking McAuliffe with Biden. You've got a lot of angst over the, what is perceived as the more leftist trend of school boards. That's an issue here. And, and it's, it's clearly hurting McAuliffe. Uh, for a long while the democrats they they just they didn't want to have anything to do with biden it was kind of like okay let's let's pretend that biden's not around well now that they're in trouble biden's apparently going to be campaigning you know with mcauliffe at least in certain heavily democratic areas to try to boost the turnout but this is a huge issue and it's being viewed as a referendum uh from the democrat side the election isn't about the future. The election is about the past. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to link the guy who's running now with Donald Trump. Oh, this is he was endorsed by Donald Trump. You know, he attended a Trump campaign rally that this is, you know, Trump is the boogeyman. And if you elect Youngkin, you know, what you're doing is really just electing Trump. So that's the strategy that the Democrats are running. They're they're running on the past. The Republicans are running on the present. And nobody knows what voters are going to do with regard to the future. But this is a race that is being incredibly closely watched I don't know which way it's going to go I will say this it's a lot closer than a lot of people thought and that's because I think it's indicative of the fact that you know the, the Biden the Biden numbers Biden has become a drag on the ticket for people who have been watching polls and again I understand there's people who just don't believe in polls Joe Biden's numbers his poll numbers at this point in his presidency are lower than any other president in recent times, with the exception of Donald Trump. So whatever halo effect that Biden had when he came in in January, that's pretty much gone. Afghanistan and inflation and the return of COVID and the problems at the border and all this other stuff have, have clearly taken its toll on on biden at least on biden's poll numbers and i think we're going to get the first indication of how bad a toll it's taken when you look at this virginia race a race that i think a lot of people thought was just going to be a cakewalk for the democratic candidate when we come back let's soak the rich stick around you're
0: listening to jeff wagner on wtmj all right
1: uh let let's just do a quick
0: little primer here the way
1: when we impose taxes in this country, we tax income as a general rule. We, we don't tax wealth. By, by that, I mean you every year you don't have to look at all the values of your assets. Say, like, take the value. This is how much my TVs are worth, and this is how much my cars are worth, and this is how much my house is worth, and this is how much the artwork hanging on my house is worth. What you, you don't, and you don't have to, like, do a net worth thing and then pay tax on that. You pay tax on on your income. How much money did I make? How much did my employer pay me? Uh, So, you know, you get that amount and, and that's, we, we tax it. If you, if you sell stocks, for example, let's say, you know, in 2015 you bought a stock for $10, and in 2021 you sell it for $20, you will pay tax on your capital gain. That would be the difference between $10 and $20 because you've, you've realized that income, right? You don't, as the, every year goes by, you don't pay tax on the value of that stock. You just wait till you sell it, then you pay tax on it. So we tax income as a general rule. And um, then we have death taxes as well and things like that. So that's the way we do things. Well, as you know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden, they're, they're trying for this great society sort of let's let's create more and more entitlements and let's figure out how to pay for it. Well, the problem is they don't have enough votes in the Democratic caucus in the Senate to pass tax increases to come up with two trillion dollars or three trillion dollars or whatever they end up settling on so they're looking at other forms of revenue so what they are apparently settling on is a a wealth tax even though they don't quite, quite want to call it that a, a wealth tax on the very very most most wealthy people in the country now the reason they do this is because you know that doesn't affect most of us you know we 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 don't have a billion dollars in assets. We're not making a hundred million dollars a year in, in income. So it's like, well, this affects somebody else. So why should we care about it? So let's just stick it to the rich. That's the idea. But what they're looking at doing is imposing a special tax on the wealthiest Americans, which would require them every year to essentially figure out the value of of their assets and then pay tax on what they call any unrealized gains. So, for example, let's say you have a million dollars in Apple stock, all right? And that's as of January 1st of 2021. December 31st of 2021, that Apple stock is now worth 1500000 You would, instead of waiting till you sold that stock to pay the capital gains, you would have to pay tax on that $500,000 gain during the course of, of the year. You'd have to pay tax on that. If your house appreciated in value at the beginning of the year your home was worth a million dollars and at the end of the year your home was worth 1.2 million dollars you would have to pay tax on that unrealized gain that two hundred thousand dollars Presumably, although it's kind of unclear, the same thing would be true of all sorts of other stuff. If you've got you got a classic car, you know, you've got you've got that Mercedes that's in your driveway. Um, The Mercedes has gone up in value because it's a collectible. You'd have to pay tax on the increased value. Artwork, you know, you've got a expensive painting in your living room. You would have to pay tax on the increase in the value of that. And the idea is, this is how we're going to pay for all this social spending. Now, what is unclear? First big question is, what happens? That's all well and good to generate revenue when value is going up. But what happens when value goes down? For example, let's say... You you have a year where there's a stock market correction. And that Apple stock that you own that's worth a million dollars on January 1st of 2021, December 31st, it's only worth $500,000. So you've lost 500 grand. Does the government then write you a check because, hey, you've lost value on this? Well, that's, um, so far nobody's talking about that, but that's one of the, the issues. Okay. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. First of all, I, I, I've got several problems with this. First of all, just in concept, we tax income. We do not tax the value of stuff. We don't, we don't make people pay taxes based on what their stuff is worth. And I think once you, Open the door to doing that, assuming that you can even do it constitutionally and there'd be all this litigation. You you set this very, very bad precedent. Secondly, I think this is just completely impractical because can, can you imagine all the litigation, all the fights that are going to develop where what the IRS comes in and says, well, you know, your, your house isn't on the market, but we think your million-dollar house is now worth $1.1 million, and here we want you to pay tax on that unrealized gain. And you say, no, I, I, my house isn't worth a million-one. I think at best my house is worth maybe, a, a, you know, 100000 It's worth the same as it was a year ago. So, I mean, the practical idea of trying to assess what stuff is worth – on a regular basis, I, I think it's very, very difficult. Third, I mean, here here's the reality. This is not a reliable fundraising mechanism because let's face it. I mean, the people who are wealthy and have these type of assets, they're going to figure out all sorts of different ways uh, around this. Maybe it's OK. All right. You, you want to tax um you want to tax these stocks. Well, I tell you what, I'm I'm not going to hold the stocks in my own name. We'll, we'll put them in. We'll put them in a family trust, or we'll put the house in a family trust. The people that would benefit from something like this primarily are the trust and estate lawyers, and this would be a cottage industry for them. You know, moving money around and things like that. It seems to me it's no, it's not a reliable form of generating revenue. And when you make a commitment to $2 trillion, say, in social spending, and all of a sudden this tax on the really wealthy doesn't generate a fraction of that, what's going to happen? Are they going to do away with the social spending things? Nope. I think everybody else is going to get socked with this. Okay, 855-616-1620. That is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Now, I understand the political appeal of this, which is why should we care? I mean if the I, I don't I don't have I'm not a billionaire, why should I care if those people have to make more money? Why why should I care if they have to pay more? Stick it to them. I understand the appeal of it. I'm just arguing I don't think this is gonna work. We discuss in a moment. And and, and just to give you an idea, when when I tell you this is unworkable, Sweden used to have a, a wealth tax. Sweden bailed on that in in 2007. France used to have a wealth tax going after the wealthy. It got rid of it in two thousand and eighteen. France repealed its net worth tax because they believed that some of the very richest French citizens, about ten thousand people, had bailed. They had left the country taking thirty five billion dollars of euros worth with them um, because of tax reasons. Same thing true in Sweden. Sweden took a look at this and said look it's just too complicated and what we found is the, the wealthy they, they, they weren't they weren 't paying these wealth taxes. they moved their wealth or they moved themselves. If you don't think that would happen here, if you would do something like this, I'm sorry, you are naive in the extreme. Look, I I, I understand that there's this wish list that's out there, and I understand it's always easier to say, let's stick it to to somebody else. Let's stick it to that person who has more than us because I don't think that they're paying their fair share. But trying to do something as radical, and it is radical, as a wealth tax and trying to target it to just certain people, that it's just, it's flat out not going to work. And I think even a lot of the people that are pushing it know it. The chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee acknowledges that this would be a logistical nightmare to try to enforce this is not how you base social policy. Now, if the Democrats want to Push something like this through okay fine get the votes you know do a tax increase i'm not in favor of that at all but at least that's something that would be workable as opposed to something like this that sounds good and maybe is a political talking point soak the rich but has no 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 basis
0: for working in reality Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
1: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I want you to work with me for a moment. And if you are well, if you're if you're thirty or older, you, you this will really hit home. But it but you can you can play around with this if you're younger than that. I, I want you to think about your house apartment or or wherever now think about all the stuff you currently have in in your house just kind of mental note think about the kitchen the bedrooms the stuff in the living room stuff in the den all all those type of things okay think about that now think about where you lived say 15 years ago right and and think about the the stuff that you had in your house 15 years ago or or 20 years ago Think, think about that And my guess is, if you are like most of us, you have a lot more electronic stuff in your house now than than you did I mean, 20 years ago. When, when I was a kid growing up, for example, there was, you had the big TV in the living room and if you were really, really wealthy, maybe there was a portable TV somewhere else. Now you got TVs in every room of the house. Now we, we have, you have, you know, Amazon Alexa that, that's there and you've got the Sono sound bars and you've got, you know, all the different streaming services and you've got all that stuff. We have a lot more gadgets that, that are around and those gadgets all need to be powered. I mean, think about... Think about computers. I mean, there was a point in time, you know, not that long ago where... You know, maybe, maybe if you came from a more high end family, you know, maybe you had that, that family computer that, that sat on, you know, on, on the desk in dad's office or, or whatever. Well, nowadays, you know, we've got multiple laptop computers, we've got the desktop computers, and a lot of us don't have computers at all because essentially our, our phones act as computers. So we, we've got all these different gadgets, lots more gadgets now than we had 10, 15, 20 years ago, which is all great, because it contributes to the quality of our life. In addition to all those gadgets and things like that, well, one of the things is, even with, regardless of how you feel about climate change, even with, all right, the earth getting a little warmer and things like that, if you live in Wisconsin in the winter, winters are still cold. Now, now maybe... Maybe you can argue, well, the average winter temperature has gone up a, a, a degree. It's a degree warmer now than it was 20 years ago. I don't know what the numbers are, but you, you get my point. But that still doesn't mean that when January rolls around, it's pretty darn cold in Wisconsin. And if you're like me, you don't want to freeze your tukas off if you're sitting here. So you're, you're going to turn the heat on. We still have to heat our houses have to do all that sort of stuff. So you've got the gadgets that need to be powered. We've got to figure out ways to heat the houses and things like that. And for that, you need power. Now, let's be honest, right? We can talk all we want about some of these alternative forms of energy. Here, we, we wanna put solar panels on the house and take advantage of the sun, oh, okay, that, that's fine. Here, we wanna put windmills up and we wanna generate windmill energy. Okay, that, that's all well and good, but let's also live in the real world. In the real world, you can have all the solar panels you want, but on a cloudy day in January, they're not gonna generate enough power to heat your house, they're, they're just not. And to power all your electronic devices and to fire up that water heater, it's just not going to do it. You can have all the windmills that you want, and it's not going to meet the power capabilities. So I I get the green energy type of stuff, but let's be reasonable and let's be realistic and let's understand that that's a niche. Alright, and, and, and maybe, maybe it's an important niche, and maybe it's worth spending all sorts of money to try to make it a little bit of a larger niche in our overall power needs. But the truth of the matter is, it's never going to supplement, it's never going to generate enough electricity to keep us warm in, in the winter. Those are the, the things. And to power all the devices we have. Now, where am I going with this? Well, Joe Biden and a number of his aides, there's going to be a big meeting of world leaders in Glasgow, Scotland, and they're going to be talking about climate change. You know, Do you want to save the planet and all those sorts of things? And if we're going to save the planet, we, we've got to get rid of coal. We, we can't. You know, we can't use coal because coal is dirty, don't you understand? And even though coal is plentiful, even though coal is cheap, and it's a great way to generate electricity that we use to heat our houses and things like that, well, we don't want to do that because coal is dirty. And we we don't want to use natural gas because natural gas means that we have to, like, drill. And we, we don't want to, um, you know, oil. We We want to get away from oil because, well, you know, you have to drill for that and all those things. You know, we, we wanna, we wanna go to all electric cars in the next 20 years. Well, okay, that, that's great. But, you know, where, what are we gonna do with the electric grid? Where's the electricity going to come to power all those cars? And if you think it's going to come from, again, solar power or wind power, as I often say, make sure you duck your shoulder when you fall off the truck, the turnip truck, so you don't hurt yourself. So where is the power going to come from? Well, let me posit something. It's out there. And it's a conversation that if we were serious, serious about clean energy that we would have, but my argument is we're not serious about it, so we don't have it. What about nuclear power? Now, nuclear power. Now, let me give you an idea. Um, in nuclear power, we began building nu- nuclear plants in 1958. Um, at the end of December of 2020, we had 94 operating commercial nuclear reactors those reactors are on average, the average is like 39 years old. Um, we went for decades without building or bringing on a new nuclear reactor. Um, the first reactor to come online since 1996 um, came online in 2019. Meanwhile, 23 of these commercial nuclear plants were, were shut down. So because you know, we we had the incident at Three Mile Island back in in the seventies because people saw the the Jane Fonda movie. Uh, it's like, oh well, well we're afraid of this nuclear type of stuff. We we can't we can't have it. But yet, I think if you look around, nuclear power it's cheap, it is safe, it is effective. When we were on our river cruise in France, you know, we're, we're taking, you're on buses and they're taking you to different locations and stuff. And at one point in time, one of the tour guides says, well, you know, we, you know, we, France gets most of its power. We're really sorry to say from nukes, from nuclear power plants. And I was sitting next to my buddy Mike and we both look at each other and say, well, why is she apologizing for this? I mean, it, it, it makes, it makes sense. France's electricity rates are almost half of those of Germany and Germany has been mothballing nuclear plants for about the last decade plus Germany's carbon emissions are 10 times greater than that of France wherever nuclear power plants have been replaced uh, have been you know replaced generally speaking dirty power replaces clean electricity so let's tee this up 855 that's the Accurate mortgage talk and text line i cannot take people anybody who talks about climate change all right, and we need to save the plant and all this stuff, I appreciate it. But unless unless you are seriously talking about nuclear power, I do not believe you can be serious. I mean, because that's, if, if you want to get away from, we assume, unless we're going to say that we're going to give up all our gadgets and we're not going to have our laptop computers and we're going to do away with the notion of driving electric cars. I mean, if you want to su- support the power grid, right, that has to be powered from somewhere nuclear power is the way to do it and if you're talking about something else and you're not talking about nuclear power to me you're just flat out not serious and most people aren't serious then 855-616-1620 we discuss back to take your
0: calls here's wtmj's jeff wagner 855-616-1620,
1: 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, ever since the movie The China Syndrome came out 40, 50 years ago, oh, this is this is just going to be absolutely terrible. You, you can't have nuclear plants. Well, the truth is, overall, nuclear plants are incredibly safe. The 1979 Three Mile Island nuclear accident, which is the worst in American history, caused no deaths and no detectable incidents of cancer. So I mean, it, it, now in 2011, you did have the earthquake that destroyed that, the nuclear plant in Japan and, and that caused deaths and disappearances. But the number of deaths and illnesses connected to the meltdown, very, very small. And, and that, that's just the reality. Nuclear power is safe. It is effective. It is plentiful. And all I'm saying is, if it, if we are serious, about trying to figure out, you know, okay, we, we want to get ourselves away from fossil fuels and things like that. All right, nuclear power has to be in the equation, because if it's not, you're, you're unless you're willing to say, hey, I'm going to set my thermostat at 36 degrees and hope the pipes don't freeze in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the winter, you're just not going to get it done, because a handful of solar panels on your roof is not going to do it. Let's talk to Scott in South Milwaukee. Hi, Scott.
3: Um, hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my phone call. Sure. This is very interesting. Yeah. Um, I, again, I, I used to work for one of the states. One of the states. Um, investor-owned public utilities. Um, and they had a nuclear power plant up in um, up in Kiwani, mm-hmm. whatever. In the right. like, probably in the mid two thousands. In, in the mid two thousand five two thousand six timeframe, whatever, they made a decision to that they wanted to get out of the nuclear power business, so they sold the plant off to a merchant. Provider, whatever, with a 10 year, um, with a 10 year purchase power agreement. Um, and so like about midway through the purchase power agreement, whatever they decide that they weren't going to renew, whatever, which then led to the shuttering, whatever of that specific facility. But from an internal, from an, an internal costing perspective, nuclear power is the cheapest yes. per kilowatt hour to generate electricity and get it, and and get it onto the grid. The reasons that were shared internally at the time why they wanted to get out of – why they wanted to get rid of that asset was because, number one, was because the license for that plant was up in was up in like 15 years. Right. And they didn't want to have to be responsible for the re, the relicensing of that facility. Right. And number two, from a, a, a public relations standpoint – Yep. They wanted no affiliation whatsoever with with nuclear with, with nuclear sure. power because so it's the essentially... China
1: syndrome. Everybody hears you've got a nuclear plant. Didn't you see that Jane Fonda movie? My God, this thing is going to you know explode and it's going to melt down. And next thing you know, it's going to go through the Earth's core. Right? No, I, I I'm sure that they, they just didn't want the PR nightmare of it.
3: Yeah, and then the other, like you said, the the state's other public investor-owned public utility company, they had a. They also had a nuclear power facility, whatever, up in the same part of Wisconsin. I believe it was up in Kiwaskum or somewhere up in that area, they made a similar decision shortly after the other one. Shortly after the other mm-hmm. the other one did it, whatever, and with the same with the same end results, where they ended up just discontinuing the purchase power agreement and ended what and ended the source. Well, again, I mean. Whatever is sitting there asking, it's like, well, we have a power crunch here, yeah. a lack of supply, and this is the most environmentally friendly, yep. whatever way to produce power and, and the cheapest, and everybody's selling off these assets, whatever for for fears of right. the likelihood of something happening
1: right thanks which is which is I, I, you can't ever say anything's non-existent but it, it is incredibly remote now look here. here's one of the things to be honest it if, if you were going to build a new nuclear facility it apparently the startup costs are, are large it's a large initial investment but to the point scott was making once once you get it up and running it is, incredibly cheap and especially comparatively cheap a way to, to generate power once you end up getting that up and running. So, I mean, your, your return on investment, you, you get it back very quickly. But let's face it, the reason why we're not doing this in the country, in this country is that, that nuclear power has a bad rap. Everybody thinks the movie, the China syndrome. Everybody thinks about, okay, well, Three Mile Island in 1979. Well, okay, those are isolated sort of of instances here, and the truth of the matter is, if, if we're serious about getting a hold of climate change, all right, And if the people don't want to give up their limos, they just want to switch to, um again, maybe electric-driven limos, and you don't want to stop flying planes, and you don't want to settle on having your house at 42 degrees or 35 degrees or whatever in in the winter, and you like the idea that, hey, I've got all these electronic gadgets, and when I throw that switch, hey, stuff comes on, the lights come on. I think there's just a lot of people out there who just don't understand that, you know, it's more than just flicking that switch. There's somebody somewhere that is generating that power that goes to your house so that when you flick that switch, the the lights come on and the computer comes on and the television set comes on and all these other things work. You know, the dishwasher runs and all that. That power has to come from somewhere. And again, if you think that that's going to be, hey, let's put a couple windmills down at the lakefront or let's put a couple solar panels up. And by the way, I'm not against that. But, but that's, that's a niche. And we don't have this concept and we don't have this conversation, honestly. Those are small niches. And can you increase the niche a little bit so it goes from 1.5% to 3%? Oh, okay. You know, and maybe that makes an incremental difference. But let's face it, if we're talking about powering our homes and powering our cars and heating our homes and doing all those other things, Solar panels and wind power and all this other stuff isn't going to make it. We need to figure it out. And if it's not going to be natural gas, and it's not going to be fossil, and it's not going to be like oil, all right, well, where is it going to come from? And the only reasonable alternative to that is nuclear power. And for everybody who's caught up in that movie, oh, I I saw the China syndrome, we can't do this. Well, what you need to do is you you need to wake up and you need to say, okay, it's 2021. We have more safe ways of doing this now than ever. And and we've got to... We've got to do it. Now, some people are saying, well, would you want the nuclear waste in your backyard? Well, no, I wouldn't want the nuclear waste in my backyard, but I don't want a Walmart in my backyard either. And that doesn't mean I'm opposed to people building Walmarts. I, again, you can stick your head in the sand. You can pretend that, gee, we can just magically flip a switch and we're going to have all our power needs. You can say, oh, gee, I, I saw a couple of those windmills. That's great. That ain't going to get it done. It's just not. So before you talk to me about climate change, all right, let's have an honest conversation about where the power is going to come from. Uh, Joe Biden, you know, maybe what you need to do is develop a backbone and say to all the people that are pushing you for climate change, all right, what is the realistic alternative? And and if nuclear isn't one of those considerations, that tells me you're not serious
0: about this issue. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Well, it turns out that bribes don't work. Who, who would have known? Remember, um, in the push to get more people vaccinated, one of the things that a number of communities in particular did, including communities around here, is they decided we're going to bribe people. We're we're going to pay people. We'll we'll give you $100. We'll give you $500. We'll give you whatever. We're going to have a giant lottery. And if you get yourself vaccinated, you get a lottery ticket. And it can be this life-changing thing. Remember we we did all that? Well, new series of studies that are out that say surprise after surprise, that doesn't work. Turns out, this is the Wall Street Journal today, turns out paying people to take the COVID-19 vaccine doesn't work. Recent evidence, and there's a whole series of studies that have just come out, suggest financial incentives have done little to boost vaccination rates among those already vaccination hesitant. So the idea, we're going to give you three cream puffs at the state fair, well, okay, it's nice, but what they find in these studies is First of all, that there's not a noticeable increase in the number of people who are getting vaccinated in areas where you you had the bribes that were paid as opposed to areas where there weren't. And also among the people, so the people who, who did sign up as a general rule, hey, I'm going to get those those cream puffs from the state fair. They they, they were inclined to be vaccinated anyways. It wasn't like the incentive, the, hey, give me a 100 bucks and I'll get vaccinated. It was, they would have done it anyways. Now they might have done it, you know, maybe a little bit quicker because you were giving them the dough and, and that all makes sense. But one study after another simply saying, you know, offering people these bribes really did not move the needle and it actually says in some cases for some people it might have even hardened their opposition to it how do we get more people vaccinated well that's a whole different story but for people who think paying bribes and paying cash incentives and giving you in the lottery and things like that were the way to do it at least the real world studies right now are saying
0: it didn't work jeff wagner on wtmj
1: next year is going to be a fascinating election year in wisconsin of course as we've talked about before you're, you're going to have all sorts of national attentions looking looking at the, the the senate race ron johnson who has not announced yet my sense is he's running for re-election but i, I don't have any inside information on that but re- regardless this seat if ron johnson runs for u.s senate it will be viewed he will be viewed probably as the most vulnerable republican senator on the ballot. I mean, there's already, what, like a, a dozen people that are running for the opportunity to run against Ron Johnson, whoever the Republican candidate is. In Wisconsin, uh, that seat, Johnson's seat, Whoever runs for that, if it is Ron Johnson, he will be the only Republican running for reelection in for the Senate in a in a state that was carried by Joe Biden. So uh, it's but before we even get into the any of the dynamics about Ron Johnson running for a third term, you've got Wisconsin as a as a swing state. It's going to be incredibly competitive. Also, you, you have Tony Evers, who is up for reelection. Now, I have argued before that Tony Evers is really an accident of political history. And I don't say that in a bad way, but back in 2018, I don't think people were excited to vote for Tony Evers. What happened was you had, that was the Republican midterm. You had a lot of people, particularly in Milwaukee and Madison, who despised, yes, that's the word I use, despised Donald Trump. and, And they ran out, they couldn't vote against Donald Trump in 2018, but they could vote against anybody that had an R next to their name, and they took it out on Scott Walker. So that, I I think the anti-Trump motivation by people, particularly in Dane County and Milwaukee County, coupled with the fact that Give them credit. The Democrats put a, a number of let's non-binding let's legalize pot referendums on the ballot in a variety of Democrat-leaning uh, counties and communities. So what happened is you had the pot voters that came out, you had the we hate Trump voters that came out, and they tended to vote for Evers. So I mean, Evers won. That that that's fine. But Evers is up for re-election. And I still think it's fair to say that Tony Evers is, regardless of how you feel about how he's handled things like COVID and the economy and stuff, he's not particularly this inspiring candidate that has people ready to run through walls to to vote for him. I think he's an incredibly vulnerable candidate in 2022. So, as I've often said, though, you, you can't beat somebody with nobody, and the Republicans have to come up with a candidate. The leading candidate right now not making any predictions, but the leading candidate right now is the former Lieutenant Governor, Rebecca Clayfish. Rebecca, of course, spent eight years as Lieutenant Governor. She has all sorts of contacts that she's developed over that time. She is smart. She's photogenic. She is well-spoken. She... She checks off a lot of the boxes if you're looking for, you know, a Republican candidate to run in in Wisconsin because she is what I will describe as the leading candidate right now. She is also the target of Democrats and she is the target of their pretty much unpaid allies in the, the mainstream media. So it seems like there's not a week that goes by that you don't find three or four stories that appear in various media outlets, particularly the Milwaukee Journal, that have have snarky things that are written about Rebecca Clayfish, in part because you've got the reporters that, in my opinion, are aligned with Tony Evers, and, and, and it's like, okay, well, Rebecca Clayfish is somebody who could beat him, and here we have to try to bring her down. Latest one is a story out today. Rebecca Clayfish says Republicans need to, quote, hire mercenaries to win the 2022 race for Wisconsin governor. She said they hire mercenaries and engage in, well, here's the first paragraph, Rebecca Clayfish over the weekend told Republicans they needed to hire mercenaries and engage in ballot harvesting to help her win next year's race for governor, a practice she said she wants to ban. Um, she says that, look, that's, that's what she said in a Saturday speech to Republicans, Door County. Clayfish said the method she needs to use to win bother her so much that she'll need to wash herself with steel wool. If the campaign strategy works, she said she would quickly sign legislation overhauling how elections are conducted. Oh, she's going to use these tactics, hire mercenaries and, and and do ballot harvesting. Well, you know what? She is absolutely correct with this. Here's the deal. And, and I think it is important for everybody, Republicans and Democrats, move beyond a lot of this stuff that went on in the 2020 election and start looking forward. Here is the reality. and Some people don't like to hear it. But the reality is Joe Biden got more votes. In Wisconsin, than Donald Trump did. That is just the reality. There were not widespread voting malfunctions. Machines where twenty thousand people voted for Biden and voted for Trump, and they became Biden votes. That that's that's fantasy land. It did not happen. That that's just the, the reality. And the idea of gee, we had you know twenty twenty five thousand people who weren't otherwise allowed to vote who went out and cast votes for Joe Biden. That that's. Th- that didn't happen. And, and see, Republicans need to move away from that. And actually, Republicans need to start doing exactly what Clayfish is talking about. Now, now, hear me out. I think this ballot harvesting, the the idea of events like democracy in the park, where you take a bunch of money given by people, liberal-leaning people like Mark Zuckerberg, you take the Zuck bucks and they funnel them largely not exclusively but largely to heavily Democratic areas, and they use that to fund get out the vote efforts, not so much get out the vote efforts to get out the vote to vote for Joe Biden, um, but efforts that let's see if we can spend this money to turn out voters in the heavily Democratic areas, knowing that they're more likely than not to vote for Democrats than Republicans. See, that's that's what what happened. It wasn't, gee, we're going to put operatives who are going to use, again, city resources to specifically turn out Biden voters. It's going to turn out voters, but we're going to do it heavily in areas where we know that the people who are going to vote are likely to vote Democrat. All right. Th- that's that's what went on. I question whether or not that is legal or not, but it is an open question. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court, you know, ducked that issue. So, yeah, if that's the rules we're playing by, Rebecca Clayfish is absolutely correct. Rather than whining and complaining about tactics that were used in the 2020 election, Republicans need to say, okay, if this is the rules we're going to play by, if we're going to be allowed to do these events like Democracy in the Park, and if they're going to do them again in Madison or whatever, well, okay, we, we need to figure out ways to fund our, our own version of these operations. It was, and that's what you need to do. As far as the, the mercenaries for hire, I mean, what she's talking about is the, the paid campaign operatives that the Democrats used to go and, and again, line up the votes and assemble the votes and turn them in at the Democracy in the Park thing. And, and she's absolutely right. If that's what you need to do to win elections. Now, we might think that that's not the way you should run elections. And I, I think that some of these practices that were used are contrary to state law, but until the Supreme Court decides that that this these are the rules you play by, so Republicans need to learn. And yes, they need to take a page out of the playbook from the Democrats and what they used in 2020, and they used to need, need to u- do the same thing. And if that means mercenaries, if that means the ballot harvesting, if those are the rules that elections in Wisconsin are going to be run by. Unless and until the legislature makes it clear that that is illegal and the legislature is not going to be able to do it because Tony Evers will never sign off on that because that those tactics benefit him and his side, and that's okay. Or until the court says that these practices are illegal, and I don't know that you're going to have any rulings on that anytime soon, the Republicans need to play by the same rules. That, that's it. And this obsession that some people have with relitigating the 2020 election it is frankly it it's counterproductive you know, one of the things that cost Republicans the elections in Georgia in those two Senate seats that they lost was the fact that, you know, Donald Trump, instead of trying to go down and campaign actively to get people to go out and vote for Republican candidates, he's there telling his supporters, well, you know, I, I think this election was rigged, so why bother voting? Well, that's the last message that you want to be giving to Republican voters. You want to be increasing turnout. So when Rebecca Clayfish says, hey, look, we need to use the same tactics that were used against us in 2020, she's she's absolutely right. And if that means ballot harvesting, well, all right, until somebody says that that's illegal, you, you do it. If that means hiring mercenaries or paid people instead of relying on volunteers, as traditionally has been the case, well, that's what you need to do. You need to play by the rules. And I think what happened in 2020 in the presidential race in Wisconsin is that the Democrats were better at organizing. They were better at using whether you want to call them loopholes or whatever, to, to turn out votes for Joe Biden. And rather than whining about that and and looking backwards, Republicans need to look forward. And Clayfish is absolutely right about all that. And so I know the headline is, well, she's saying mercenaries for hire. What is that? Well, she's saying we need to do the same thing the other side did. And, yeah, that's what Republicans need to talk about. Do the same thing the other side did and then see where that that where, where that gets you. Don't whine about tactics and tell, you, know, don't, you gotta do the same thing. You gotta do what works as long as it's within the law. Back with more in just a minute.
0: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by our friends at Great Midwest Bank. And by the way, this is the last week for the fall version of this. We're bringing it back next spring. Thanks to all our great sponsors, including our presenting sponsor, Great Midwest Bank. Well, anyways, this week, the sponsor for the Home Improvement Showcase is Ridgetop Exteriors. Specializing in roofing, siding, and windows. Do not miss out on the Ridgetop Advantage. Contact Ridgetop Exteriors today. Give them a call, 414-244-9416, or visit them at Exteriors ridgetopexteriorsnke.com. Dot- Calm. Here's a text. Jeff, I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm just amazed that you even need to say what you've just said. Republicans will end up screwing up future elections if they can't get all this through their noggins. Right. That's, that. that you know, all this, this stuff with the elections and, and litigating things. I mean, you just want to like slap people on the heads and say, look, here, here's the deal. There wasn't a problem with voting machines. There wasn't widespread voting fraud. What happened is you had Democrats in the presidential race who I'll give it the most charitable view, exploited loopholes in Wisconsin election law. You had the Zuckerberg group that put in an enormous amount of money, and they gave it to areas that were primarily heavily Democratic areas, and they used it to help turn out voters. Not specifically voters for Biden, but if you spend a lot of money turning out voters in Dane County and Madison, and Dane County or in Milwaukee, what's going to happen is you're going to get more Democrat voters than Republican voters, and it, it appears to be legal to do that, or at least of questionable lit legality. And the whole ballot harvesting and things like democracy in the park—I I don't know—stuff like that bothers me. But until you have a ruling that says it's purely Ill- illegal, either by the Supreme Court or the legislature and the governor act to change the law, understand those are the rules that people are playing by. So stop whining about what happened in 2020 and figure out how... You know, your side can do it in, in 2022 to cut down the competitive advantage that happened. And, and that's, that's it. You've got to move forward. You know, all this obsession about what happened two years ago. Well, I, we, we know what happened two years ago. And now it seems to me, if you're going to win elections, you have to start thinking ahead. What can we do? How can we beat the other side at their own game? All right. I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. And this is one of these really undercovered stories. I don't care how you feel about employer vaccine mandates. Now, I I think businesses have the right to say what conditions are that you, what what the working conditions are, and I think a business, as a general rule, has a right to say to its employees, "Look, as a condition of coming back to work, you need to be vaccinated." I, I believe a business has the right to do that. Now, is that always the right thing to do? Well no, because I think employer employees can then say, All right, sorry, I I'm, I quit. I, I'm not going to do that. And then so the business has to weigh the effect of the mandate versus how many employees are we going to lose? And I know there's some people out there that just poo-poo this and say, well, you're you're, you're not going to lose that many people. Well, talk to what's going on in Chicago. Talk to that. Uh, talk. Wait till you see what happens in a couple of weeks with a bunch of nursing homes and stuff when they're forced to either shut down or shovel a lot of patients somewhere else because they've lost a lot of people over these vaccine mandates. We had, but but that's the employer mandate. Then you have the government mandate. And of course, you've got, you know, Joe Biden, who wants a workplace rule put into effect, which would require businesses with 100 or more employees to ensure that those employees are vaccinated or tested weekly. And, and what he's trying to do in his workplace rule is essentially force employers to impose, uh, again, the, the equivalent of the vaccination thing. I have a problem with the government forcing employers to do something. If employers want to do it, that's fine. But the government forcing employers to do it, to me, is a whole nother thing. But here's the interesting story. Apparently, you have a lot of businesses that are out meeting with the Office of Management Budget this week, and they are telling the Biden administration, if you want to go ahead with this mandate, you've got to delay it till after the first of the year. Why? Because if you put this in place before the holidays, it's going to devastate the economy. The American Trucking Association, which is apparently meeting with the Biden people today, they say, look, here, here we don't have enough truckers to begin with. We are afraid and if you put this requirement in, on, on, like the large trucking companies, we could lose as many as 37% of drivers through retirements resignations and workers switching to smaller companies that aren't covered by the requirements can you imagine what happens we, we can't get stuff off of those cargo ships now can you imagine what happens if you lose 37% of the truck drivers for these big firms all right forget 37% can you imagine if you lose 20% of the drivers it would be absolutely devastating and it, it's going on and on and on they're talking about the story I'm looking at all these other you know different businesses Um the retail industry the retail industry is saying look we're, we're afraid we could lose as many as 40% of our employees if you put this requirement in place now and the last time we want to do this we can't find workers for the holidays anyways so please 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 you know delay implementation of this at least until after the holiday season when we'll be able to handle this you know the other day we talked about the, the crisis that is coming at TSA All right uh <laughs> november 22nd is the drop dead deadline for TSA workers to be vaccinated. If they are not, they're subject to being, you know, fired, gotten rid of. Uh, Right now, the estimates are that about like 30 plus percent of TSA workers are not vaccinated and, and may well not get vaccinated. Well, you don't have enough TSA workers now. Can you imagine the lines at the airport? Now, Thanksgiving, and they're thinking this might be one of the busiest travel seasons in history. All right, Thanksgiving is the 25th. Can you imagine what's going to happen in airports if all of a sudden you've got to get rid of, you you lose 20 percent of the TSA workers? Those lines to get through TSA, which are now a half hour, they become an hour and 15 minutes. And for everybody who says, well, I'm worried that the TSA guy might, you know, might have COVID. Well, they're wearing masks your contact with them is going to be a few seconds, and they haven't had to be vaccinated for the last year and a half, and I haven't heard TSA workers having incidental contact with the airport as being a super spreader event. I would argue you're much more likely to get COVID from somebody standing next to you, shoulder to shoulder in a line for an hour and 15 minutes, than you would from an isolated contact with the TSA person. All I'm saying is that this you, – you've got a. You know, some people think there's light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to vaccinations. And I, I'm a guy who got vaccinated. I'm just telling you, that might not be a light at the end of the tunnel. Unless Biden delays these rules till after the holidays, that, that light at the end of the tunnel is probably a train coming the other way.
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Next Monday,
1: I've described this, I, I don't think it's the trial of the century, and it's probably not going to be the trial of the decade, but it is going to be a trial that is watched not only locally, statewide, nationally, maybe internationally. Uh, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, now 18 years old, kicks off in Kenosha next Monday with jury selection. The The last round of court rulings, I think, pretty much came out yesterday or, or today, and the matter will, will go to the jury. The trial, the jury selection starts on Monday. I don't know that on one hand, it is a simple, straightforward case that the jury's gonna to have to decide based on the facts. On the other hand, you've got all these complicated things and these issues and sub-issues that are out there. I mean, everybody knows the case essentially in its, in its most basic form. Um, in Kenosha, you had riots. And yes, I used that word riots that, that broke out. Massive destruction of, of businesses, fires, arsons, things like that. And, and they went on for a series of nights. In the beginning, the first two nights, and I think law enforcement officials will tell you this: the police were were outmanned. They were slow to react to get the bodies in that they needed to deal with the hostility of the crowd and all those sorts of things. And, and they they were just they were overwhelmed. The National Guard came in, 125 members of the National Guard. They were put in and effectively a defensive position around like one of the buildings and stuff. But it didn't stop other buildings from burning. Now. As time went on, by the time of the third night, and that's when the Rittenhouse shootings were, authorities had gotten a lot more law enforcement people in, and they, they had a much better control of the situation. Well, what was going on, though, is, of course, the, the riots and the destruction, um, around Kenosha, it was becoming a national story. I mean, this, a lot of people were seeing what was happening, and this was, going on social media. A lot of businesses in Kenosha, for example, were saying things like business people, I I might be having my last meal here. You know, you never know what's going on. So by the third night, what happened is you had a number of people from the surrounding area and Illinois and elsewhere who were coming to Kenosha to act as, as their own sort of know quasi police force to sit and and protect various buildings and things of of the like and then you know that led to stuff now by the third night of course this was the same time that you had authorities that were really getting it under control they had pretty much caught up with a lot of what's going on anyhow there's a huge story about this in the New York Times today let me let me share a portion of it with you to use as the launching point for the conversation Um, and it's Again, it, it's talking, it's a lengthy story, but it, it's talking about Kyle Rittenhouse and stuff, and it's also talking about some of the people who came to Kenosha to protect the businesses, quote-unquote, on that third night. Um Let's see, it, it quotes one guy, said, for him and others who went to defend businesses outside the downtown area, that night was mostly uneventful. Things were quieter than the night before across most of the city, except for the area immediately around Civic Center Park, where police and demonstrators dug in for a third consecutive night of street fighting. But but now... The sheriff, David Beth, attempted something that he had not attempted to do the previous two nights. He sent a line of armored vehicles to forcibly clear the park and the surrounding streets two hours after the 8 p.m. curfew passed, thereby pushing the crowd south. Um, all right. Then they're talking about some of the films that were taken. OK, when somebody else starts live streaming, the push had just begun. Kyle Rittenhouse's group of paramilitaries assembled around the auto dealership just south of the park was right in its path. For the next hour and a half, now this is the New York Times description, Rittenhouse would alternate between standing guard at the dealership and making sorties up and down the street to offer medical assistance. It was during one of these missions around 1140 that he was cut off from the rest of his group by the armored police vehicles. The video of Rittenhouse's movements, and this is going to be introduced at the trial, on the street that night clearly shows Joseph Rosenbaum, who Rittenhouse encountered earlier that evening, pursuing him across the lot and eventually throwing a plastic bag at him. Another man, later identified as Joshua Ziminski, can be seen shooting a handgun in the air nearby moments before Rittenhouse off-camera, apparently turned and shot Rosenbaum. A minute later, a crowd chased Rittenhouse up the street, and after Rittenhouse fell, several people lunged for him. Rittenhouse shot one of them, Anthony Huber, who was swinging a skateboard, and another who appeared to be reaching for his own handgun. Rosenbaum and Huber died within minutes, um... The guy who was shot in the arm survived. Police arrived two minutes later at 1151 p.m., did not arrest Rittenhouse, who walked towards them and then passed the police line, still armed, went back home to Antioch, Illinois. Hours later, accompanied by his mother, he turned himself in at the Antioch Police Department. All right. The New York Times, and again, this is the story in today's paper, they, they continue and You understand that part of this is going to be made uh, about militias and police respondents. This is what the New York Times says. Thus far, there has been little to suggest that Rittenhouse saw himself as a a Paul Revere when he stepped onto the street in Kenosha with his rifle. Prosecutors have yet to produce evidence that Rittenhouse held extremist views or associations before the shootings. His own defense attorneys intend to argue that in a chaotic moment, he simply acted in self-defense. This is likely to center the trial on Rittenhouse's actions over a series of brief and fateful moments, not the much larger question of what brought Rittenhouse and so many others to the streets of Kenosha equipped for war. So that's the way The New York Times is is portraying it, and I think that that might be a fair description of... Of, of the way the trial is going to play out, focusing on what this 17-year-old, now 18-year-old, you know, did did that night, as opposed to maybe some of the larger issues about what did the police do, you know, what did the protesters do, etc. All right, the, the trial kicks off a week from t- uh, yesterday. I, I know we're going to be spending a lot of time covering it, talking about it, but we, we've waited over a year for this matter to go to trial. I don't really think the facts are, are that much in an issue. And that's one of the reasons I read this thing in the New York Times today, because I think it's kind of a fair recitation of of what the, the evidence is going to show. I mean, what happened is, is what happened. All right, Rittenhouse is charged with two counts of intentional homicide and one count of... Um, of uh, again the non-intentional not the homicide but you know assault with a dangerous weapon resulting in serious bodily injury our number 855-616-1620 that is the Accident mortgage talk and text line do you have an opinion as to how this is going to go what do you think is going to happen we discuss in just a moment
0: back for more here's wtmj's jeff wagner 855-616-1620.
1: Let's talk to Mike in New Berlin. Mike, good afternoon.
4: Good afternoon. Uh, Yeah, I think he's going to be found guilty. Uh, What he did was 100% wrong. He had a weapon that he should not have had. That was 100% wrong. He was in a situation he should not have been at. That was 100% wrong. He's a vigilante which there is no reason to have those in our society, he's 100% guilty, and they better find him guilty.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Um, You you talk about he's a vigilante and and things like that. The the gun charge, which may or may not stand, they're they're still considering that, but um, that would be a misdemeanor. Um, Obviously, what, what is the gun charge, If assuming for the sake of argument that he shouldn't have had the gun? Okay, Let, let's say that the statute applies and he shouldn't have it, and that's a misdemeanor. Does that, in your opinion, mean that if it was legitimate self-defense later on, he shouldn't be able to, to use that defense?
4: He should not have the defender with the gun. Yeah. He killed two people. Yeah. He's guilty of what he did. And to try and portray him as anything less a murderer is wrong yes he's a vigilante he took the law into his own hand nobody forced him to go there he went there to cause harm he he's terrible he belongs in prison and to let him off for any reason is wrong he's he's guilty of killing two people and wounding another
1: okay thanks to call mike eight five five six one six one six twenty now this this stirs up passion i I guess what I was trying to get Mike to focus on, and I did a lousy job of it, was the, the fact that okay, even if you assume that he, he shouldn't have come to Kenosha, and that he should not have had the gun, and there's again there's a legal issue as to whether that charge is appropriate or not. But but let's let let's say that you shouldn't have had the gun. Does that mean that that you can no longer use self defense if you were in fact? And, and, I'm, and I'm not taking a position on this, but if you were attacked do you no longer have the right to do it because, well, you shouldn't have been there and you shouldn't have had the gun, but otherwise it would have been, you know, you, you were you were attacked and you were in fear of your life, so you shouldn't be able to do it. I, I mean, I, I just raise this as an issue. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I believe the jury will find him guilty on all counts, but if that doesn't happen, they will likely acquit on a couple of counts guilty of others. It will be hard for jurors to get past the fact that there were uh, two lives lost. A lot of text on this. Jeff, I've lived in Kenosha all my life, 62 years. One of the biggest problems during the riots were that outsiders were coming here and adding to the chaos, whatever their intentions. Kyle Rittenhouse was one of them. I believe he was defending himself, but he should not have come. He was underage and carrying a loaded rifle on the street. I believe that should be illegal. In the end though, I think he will be found not guilty. That would be like not guilty of the homicide Charges, um, Jeff. I admit he was wrong for being there, but I think he originally showed up to remove um, to remove graffiti. Jeff, I totally agree. Disagree, disagree with your current caller. I believe that Rittenhouse was attacked by a man wielding a handgun. If that were me, I would have done the same thing. Um, okay, eight five five six one six one six twenty. And there's people saying, "Well, you should have a statue built in his honor." Uh, that, that's, that's not the that's not the case, Jeff. I think this is the clearest case of self-defense that you will ever see, Jeff. In all honesty, I think he should be found not guilty. The young and the young man is a hero. He's he's not a hero. I mean, that I'm sorry. I, I just, regardless of whether he's guilty or not, whether this is a legitimate exercise of self-defense or not, I, I, he's he's not a hero. In this particular situation, these folks who parachuted in to um Kenosha that third night they they made matter they made situations worse things would have been better if we did not have this these self-proclaimed people as part of a paramilitary group carrying you know weapons and quote-unquote guarding places it it made the situation worse now is that saying that you know he he didn't have a legitimate issue of self-defense no no that's that's a whole question for the facts to decide but i i do have trouble viewing Kyle Rittenhouse as any sort of HERO, 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Terry on the south side. Terry, good afternoon.
2: Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. So uh, I think the problem a lot of people are having is they're getting their emotions into it, and they go, oh, build a statue or he's a hero. That's nonsense. Right. Um, I think, just follow me here, I think there's a lot of, there are some similarities with this and the Zimmerman situation. And as a person, I have a concealed carry license. I have my firearm on me right now as we talk. I don't go looking for trouble or placing myself in situations purposely where I may have to use my firearm. Uh-huh. I don't get gas at 2 in the morning. There are certain things that I do to avoid those situations. And, yes, I do agree. In that moment when he pulled the trigger, I've, saw, I've seen the videos that self-defense. But he placed himself in a dangerous situation with a firearm he may or may not have, should have had. And he was able to use that firearm to shoot and kill people. Now, this is my issue with the Zimmerman thing. I always say, if you have a gun, you shouldn't be following people to check on them, whether you're not police. So if Mm -hmm. something happens and you kill people, there should... I don't know if it's murder, because he was—it was it was self-defense in that moment, but leading up to it, and this is where the gray area is, and it's... So no one really knows if he'll be found guilty or not, because I think it's more similar to the Zimmerman situation where... I, I personally think, and I, I watched the trial and everything, I think that, you know, you're going out with it. You know you have a gun, so you feel a, you feel protected because you have a gun. Right. And a lot of people don't carry guns. So you say, oh, well, I can go look for trouble or I can place myself in dangerous situations because I can defend myself. Right. And then the situation occurs, and you end up having to use the firearm, but, okay, right. it's self-defense, but there's no accountability because of the way the right. law is written that, you shouldn't have been doing what you were doing. Now, I think what should happen is he should be found not guilty on the murder charges because it wasn't murder, it was self-defense. But I do think he should be found guilty on reckless endangerment because what he did was reckless and dangerous, and he put right. everyone in danger by trying to be a vigilante. Well, now, the fact that it's a misdemeanor, there's not going to be a real punishment for that, which is unfortunate. But right, well, the, they, really no, the
1: gun charge—the gun charge is a misdemeanor. The the, the shootings are oh, oh, no Terry. Thank, that, that's a that, Terry yeah. that, that you make a, you have you have great analysis of, of this, and I mean see could, see, and here's the one thing I think people are going to wrestle with. Let let us let us say. Now, now, imagine the situation that you're you're on the street, and l- let's talk about the third shooting instance where he he shot two people, and then you have a group of other people who descend on him and are trying to disarm him or whatever, and then he shoots another one. Well, I mean, I see you, when you think about that. All right, so let's say that you know you and me. And Melissa Barkley and four or five others of us we're, we're, we're all, out co- collectively together, and we see somebody that shoots somebody else, and it's like walking away, and we run up with the idea that we're going to try to disarm him, we're going to try to stop this because we're going to try to stop what could be this mass shooting thing, and then he shoots one of us. Well, is that is that self defense? Is that a legitimate use of self defense when you know everybody else is coming up to try to disarm somebody who's already shot someone? I th- these are all. This is what makes this case and this prosecution so incredibly. Interesting. It, I don't know what the jury is going to do. See, a lot of times, a lot of times, I go into cases, and as a former prosecutor, I, I have a pretty clear idea of the way the case is going to be presented and how it should turn out, and, and how it will turn out. I want to confess, this is one of those rare situations where I, I don't know how this whole thing is is going to play out. I, I don't, because I think it's clear he should not have been there. He should not have had the gun, whether it was a crime to have the gun or not. He, he should not have had the gun. And exactly like Terry was saying, he put himself in a position where you, you invited trouble. All right. When you get trouble, though, does that mean that you no longer have the right to, you know, use self-defense? Was it reasonable? It's, I don't know how this whole thing is going to play out. And like I say, most times I have a pretty good idea of how a case is going to turn out and what I think the verdict is going to be. This one, I think, Before we hear any of the evidence and the arguments of counsel, I think it's very, very much up in the air, which is something I don't say about trials very often. And that's why it's going to be so fascinating to see how this plays out next week. When we come back,
4: let's find out what John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's afternoon news.